What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? How can we live the truth of this out in our everyday lives? In this series, you will be challenged to not just claim Christianity, but to operate in the power of Christ's name. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Good morning. Good morning, good morning. While the ushers are uh, receiving the offering, I just want to come up and begin to read the word here as we get to the end of Acts. Before I get into the word, I want to just say, yes, I got a haircut. Yes, I got all my hairs cut. No, I didn't lose a bet. I didn't lose a fight with a weed eater. I chose this. I like it. I don't care if you don't. Okay? You're third service, so you get a little bit more of a... I was really kind to first service, and now I'm just done. I'm done with the numerous jokes about my grooming, Terry. Uh, We're at this end. We're at the end of the book of Acts, and it's bittersweet because it's been such an incredible journey for me to share with you the insights through the early church and hopefully uh, bring a lot of knowledge and understanding as to how Christianity got off the ground, how a bunch of really um, low-level, unimportant people by the world standards took the world by storm, how 2,000 years later we still celebrate, we still worship the name of Christ because they laid down their lives for the gospel. And what did they do in their life? How did they act in their life? How did they love one another? And how can we take their um, example and apply it today. And so we're at the end of Acts, and at the end of Acts, the last basically 20 through 28, is Paul returning to Jerusalem, right? He's been out amongst the Gentiles for years, preaching the word, and he knows it's time to return to Jerusalem, and he knows he's gonna get beat. He knows that the Jewish leaders there are going to hate him and wanna kill him and call him a heretic, and he goes back anyway. And so he is back there in Jerusalem. If you remember a few weeks ago before Easter, uh, we got into him returning. Uh, The mob grabs him, beats him within an inch of his life, so much so he can't even walk up the steps. He has to be carried by the Roman guard. And he begins to speak in Aramaic the story of his conversion. And so where he is now in in chapter 26 is he has uh, gotten an audience with King Herod Agrippa uh, from the... Uh, long generation of the Herodians there in Judea, and with Festus, uh, you know Festus for the rest of us. And so Festus is the governor of Judea there, for my Seinfeld friends, and he has called King Agrippa in because King Agrippa understands the Jewish people, he understands Jewish theology, he was, uh, he was raised with it, and for Festus, this is completely over his head. He doesn't understand it. Uh, Paul's being accused of heresy, uh, sedition, undermining public peace, and uh, causing a riot. And Paul's speaking of this Jesus. He's speaking of the prophets. And so this is where we pick up the story. He's got an audience with the king, King Agrippa, an audience with Governor Festus, and some judges and other dignitaries there. And we're going to pick it up in verse 15 of Acts chapter 26. Paul says, Then I asked... Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to that of God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then King Agrippa, 
I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First, I went to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all of Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance with their deeds. That is why these Jew, the, some of the Jews seized me in the temple courts and they tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to the small and great alike that I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people, and then to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense, and he said, You're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning has driven you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. Look, the king is familiar with these things. I can speak freely to him. I, <clears throat> I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. Pay attention to that line. All of these things I'm speaking of Christ and his miracles and what he did, it wasn't done in secret. It wasn't done in a corner. It happened right out in public in plain sight for three years. King Agrippa do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. The king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them and after they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. And this is the word of the Lord this morning. So here's Paul there in front of the king of Judea. And because he did not think he would get a fair trial there in Judea, he appealed to Caesar. So Festus has brought King Agrippa in to make sense of everything Paul is saying, knowing that Agrippa would have background in history with the Jewish people and who this Jesus is. And as he brings him in, he's got to make a case to send Paul to Rome before Caesar. And he's like, I have no idea what this guy is talking about. He's a lunatic. And we see that, right? Festus finally stops him as he's like, Jesus met me on the road. He blinded me. He's telling him the whole story. And Festus finally goes, Paul, you're insane. What I love about this is, uh, and what I wish we did a better job with English translations, if you look at the Greek, Festus does not actually say, Paul, you're insane. Festus says, Paul, you're nuts. You're a lunatic. You're off your rocker. You're completely crazy. You're spouting nonsense. You're an idiot. Like, that's more of where Festus was going with that. He was not polite. He did not pull punches. He just basically looks at Paul and says, all of your learning, like, I get that you're a smart guy. I get that you're educated, but it's driven you loony. You're a complete crack up. And Paul looks, Paul's, <laughs> Paul's response, mm-mm, no, I'm not. Most excellent Festus. Don't you understand? So here's the thing, Paul is there making a defense of his case. But what I want you to see here this morning is that that is not Paul's main goal. Paul's goal is not to defend himself in front of the king, the Jewish leaders, or the governor. What is Paul's goal? Yeah, I'm hearing it. 
Paul's goal, and we're going to see it right here in verse 28 through 29, is this. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you but all who are listening to me today become what I am except for these chains. What a great response. So he points out to the king, king, you know Jesus. You know who he was. You know what he did. Your family, you were part of generations of kings here in Judea. In fact, King Agrippa would have been eight years old when Jesus was hung on the cross and crucified, which means he would have grown up and lived his teenage and adult life in the aftermath of what was going on with the Christians and those who believed in Jesus. So he definitely knew the Torah. He knew the Old Testament prophets. He knew the stories of the Jewish people. He knew the prophets of the coming. He knew the prophecies of the coming Messiah. Agrippa was a very educated man, and he would have known who Jesus was. He would have known of the stories of the miracles that Jesus had done. And you know, for you and I today, one of the things that we often forget is we look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we say, you know, there's a couple dozen miracles in there that Jesus did, whether it's healing the leper or a blind man or uh, someone who's lame. But John says in Revelation that if everything were written down of all the miracles Jesus did, there would not be enough books to contain it. And what he's essentially saying is that for three years, there were hundreds, if not thousands of people on a weekly, monthly basis who Jesus was meeting and performing miracles for. That Jesus was healing, that Jesus was uh, acknowledging, that Jesus was calling into righteousness, the woman at the well, right? Calling her into a righteous life, into living water. We talked about that on Easter last week. And so the point is this. That Jesus didn't just do a dozen miracles in three years, not just the ones we see in the Gospels, and you had to be one of the lucky few who saw one of these miracles. The fact of the matter is, if you were there in Judea at the time, if you were there in Jerusalem, if you were there in the regions that Jesus would travel to, Philippi, you would have seen something spectacular. Why else do you think there is the story of the loaves of bread and the two fish? Why else do you think that there is more than ten to 12,000 people gathered to hear one man speak? Right? Because they knew. All of the city knew. The people knew. The leaders knew. The peasants knew. Everyone knew this Jesus was doing something spectacular. He was doing something amazing. And so when Paul looks at Agrippa... So Festus has just called him insane, right? Festus is like, you're crazy. And so Paul goes, most excellent Festus, I get that this is uh, going over your head a little bit. And so he looks at Agrippa and he says, but you know this isn't going over your head. You know who Jesus is. You know what he did. You know that he did not hide in a corner. You know that it was out for all the world to see. And you know that he fulfilled every prophecy spoken of about the coming Messiah don't you? Now, that's a pretty bold thing to say when you're trying to win the judge over to your case. You're trying to make sure they present a strong case to Caesar in Rome so you don't get uh, either the death sentence or thrown in the stocks. And you look at him and you say, you know exactly what I'm saying about this Christ. There is nothing you can refute rationally, personally, or even biblically of, of the Old Testament 
There's nothing you can refute. And Agrippa looks at him and says, are you kidding me? You're trying to convert me? King? King Herod Agrippa, you're going to convert me? And Paul says, not just you, man, everybody here. I'd love for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I'd love for those who were just beating me to know Jesus too. Great and small. I'd love for those who the world looks at as less to come to know Christ. And I'd love for you, yes, you, King Agrippa, to know the truth of who Jesus is. Now that is as bold as it gets. Am I right? And so what I want to point out this morning is this idea of persuasion. Persuasion is a complicated thing. When we talk about being persuaded, many of us, do you feel, okay, this is a classroom activity, so you're going to have to participate. Can we do that? It's third service. You've had plenty of time to sleep. You ate brunch already. Here we go. Who here is easily persuaded? I love the honest people. Yep, put it in front of me. I want it. I buy rust protection on my car, and I get the undercoating all the time, and I buy the spare tires. Right? So the rest of you, 98% of you, are not easily persuaded. You are a strong mind, strong will, and, and you only get the things that you want, not because anyone persuaded you. Am I right on that? Am I, did I nail it? All right, yeah. You're real tough, the rest of you. I just want to call you out for a minute because you're, you're not as uh, strong as you think you are. You see, there is a constant... Uh, attempt on your life every single day to persuade you to buy the clothes you're wearing, the food you ate this morning, the style of glasses you're wearing, the underoos that are on, all of it. You bought all of it because you were persuaded. If you live in Arizona, and I'm going to go back to underwear, because if you live in Arizona, you want to buy those climate-controlled ones that help keep everything fresh, Right? You aren't buying wool underwear. Nobody walked in this morning wearing long johns because you were persuaded that would be a poor choice. And you were probably right. You're persuaded when you drive by and you see like the signs, the golden arches, that that food isn't going to slowly kill you, but that it might actually taste good and satisfy your current desire for buttery french fries and mostly meat sandwiches. And you're like, yeah, I could do that. We're persuaded constantly. You drive the car you drive because you were persuaded to drive that kind of car. You know that? I know I was. I like my car. I was persuaded by how cool it is to drive a muscle car. And I wanted to buy one. Here's the thing with persuasion. Persuasion doesn't happen on just a logical level. We do not make decisions because we realize they are rationally correct decisions, do we? I mean, if that was the case, all of us would eat vegetables, kale. I don't count that as a vegetable. It's sort of its own category of demonic foods. And we would eat fruits and nuts and fish because nobody cares about fish. And so basically, we would eat just healthy stuff. We would work out all the time. We wouldn't waste time on the TV. We would be sitting up straight. Who here realized you were just sort of slumping? Yep, got you. We would do all of the things that help us live longer, happier, productive lives. But it's not about logic and reason. Even though about 300 years ago, there was a period called the Enlightenment period where this whole idea came across that it is that human beings make decisions based on logic and reason, that we are rational creatures, and we are rational creatures. But because persuasion is so complex and how we choose to believe in something or go towards something takes more than logic. And let me give you an example. There is a book 
two books written, uh, one by Adam Smith, who wrote a book called The Wealth of Nations, and a book by Karl Marx called Das Kapital. Das Kapital is Karl Marx's view of a good society to be run justly is with a centralized economy and a centralized government, essentially socialism or communism. Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations, which is unhindered capitalism, free markets, free economies. They both did not appeal to religion. They did not appeal to uh, a beliefs or a higher power. They both appealed to science, statistics, and reason. That's what they appealed to, logic. And they came to completely opposing views for the best way to run an economy or a government. Now, how's that possible? How is it possible that you both used reason and you both showed how your idea is right? Because it's not just reason. You're not just a floating brain that walks around the earth. You have this other side of you, and it's the side I don't like. It's called emotions and feelings. Ugh. I hate feelings. I got rid of most of them, <laughs> but I still have a few. Emotions are so troublesome because they come in and they make you make decisions which aren't rational, and they make you like, like things you shouldn't like your kids, and they like keep you in a place where you're always fighting between the rational and the emotional. And it's a, it's a constant uh, battle. And so here's what they found out. When they realized, okay, human beings aren't based on just ration and logic. In fact, we actually make more decisions about, that affect our future and our lives and our well-being based on what those around us are doing. How many people make decisions based on what those around you are doing? All right, we're getting a few more honest people as we go. So here's the deal. You may have grown up in a small city or a small suburb with a small church and we're taught traditional values about you know, how to live life and everything else. And then you go off to college to the big city and the professors and the students laugh you out of the room when you begin to talk about morality and values and ethics. And they say, no, this is morality, values, and ethics. You can trust us. We have degrees and doctorates, and we've been doing this, and we're in the big city, and we have influence. And many, many people have looked and said, they're right. I'm wrong. I didn't know. I was in a sheltered, cultured environment. I now accept and take the values of those who I wish to have their approval. Right? So very common that we don't actually make always rational choices. And so when you look at this idea of persuasion, and remember, Paul is trying to persuade King Agrippa that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he died on a cross, rose again for the sins of mankind. This is what he's trying to do. He doesn't really care about defending himself. He's trying to persuade him. He comes right out and says it. Yep, that's what I'm doing. So what I want to see here today is the tactics he, did to, he used to do it, how he uses rational thought, how he uses a personal relationship and emotion. And then the third one, which is unique to scripture, is he uses the Bible as the ultimate authority and the ultimate dictator of whether or not Christ was who he said he was. Okay? So this is where we're at. So here's the thing. This is one of the reasons I struggle with the whole emotion part of religion. And we'll get to more of that in, at the end. But if you get to that point where you say, how do you know God exists? And someone says, well, I just feel him. I just feel him. And you're like, well, I don't feel him. So I'm happy for you, but I don't feel him. How do you know he exists? Well, he answered my prayers. You know, I prayed and, you know, my house caved in and I didn't have to pay rent for a month. <laughs> Obviously God exists. 
Well, what happens when you have that same story and then nothing happens and instead you get charged double because you forgot that the check never cleared from last week and you were just faithful and God didn't answer your prayer and you get evicted. Or maybe you prayed for health and you had everyone gather around you and then the report came back, nope, you're sick. Is he still God? Is he still God? To know God means to know that we're made in the image of God. And if we're made in the image of God, it means we're made with this combination of reason and emotion that are tied together and work in harmony with one another. And this is a difficult thing for us to get our minds around and to get our understanding of who God is around, that he has caused us to work those two things in concert together, that when we try to forego one or focus on the other one and not really look at this one, and in either end, either the rational or the experiential or the emotional, then we miss a whole section that God is trying to do for us. We miss a whole section of our very nature of who God is. And you will struggle with the Lord. You will struggle with loving him, knowing him, understanding him, if you ignore either one of those sides. But here's the thing. Like I said, when it comes to the scriptures and who God is, there's a third one, and that third one is the biblical reason. You see, Paul appeals to these men with the rational argument, verse 24. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul, said, you're out of your mind, right? And so he says, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. I almost said Festivus. Paul replied, what I'm saying is true and reasonable. Festus, I'm saying stuff that happened. I'm talking about the miracles he did, which thousands of people can corroborate. I'm not talking about stuff that's secret or mystical. This is just what the man Jesus did about 20 years ago. Surely you had to have heard of these stories. So he says, first I argued on the reason. Paul did not come up and talk about a burning in his bosom. He did not talk about, well, you just haven't experienced what I experienced. You have to have a Damascus Road experience, and then you'll be as passionate as me. No, he starts out and he says, it's clear that all, Jesus did these things. He did all of them. I'm not making that part up. I get that you aren't at this personal level yet, but you have to understand this. I know you didn't live here. I know you're a Gentile, and that's why he appeals to Agrippa. But Agrippa, go ahead. You tell me I'm mad. Agrippa, you tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm crazy. Does Agrippa do that? What's he do? The scripture says he stands up, takes the other guys, and they stand in a private council, and they go, this guy doesn't deserve to be put to death or put in jail. Why in the world are we even having this? And that is, in essence, him conceding, saying, he's not crazy, he's not inciting a riot, he's not a heretic, he's not trying to get people riled up and cause fights, he's just speaking truth. I know the truth he's speaking about, I know what he's talking about. Now, Agrippa wasn't going to concede to it, he wasn't going to submit his heart to it, that's why he says, you're really trying to persuade me to be a Christian, are you kidding but at the end of the day, he looked and said, there is nothing this guy's saying that is off base. He doesn't deserve to be put to death. In fact, he wouldn't even be going, we could set him free, but he appealed to Rome. So because he made the appeal and he's a Roman citizen, he gets to go before Caesar. The second part we see is the, um, the emotional or the experiential side of it. He comes to them and he says, uh, <sighs> In 26, verse 1, at the beginning, uh, of, we didn't read it, but at 26, at the first, chap, uh, first verse, it says, I was a Pharisee. 
I was the strictest of the Jews. I lived to honor the law of God. That was the meaning of his life. And so he's sharing the personal now. He's sharing him. The meaning of my life was to honor the Lord. It's, it's all I wanted to do. And here's, the, here's what we really know and, and love about Paul as we get to really see what it was that took him from a Pharisee who honored the law, you know, made sure he did everything perfect to someone who understood the grace of Christ. And we get a picture of that in Romans 7. So he's going to get shipped off to Rome. He's going to spend years in house arrest. And that's when he begins to write most of the New Testament. And in Romans 7, in a letter to the Romans, Paul talks about what happened inside his heart. He begins to talk about the personal. And he says that as he was reading the Ten Commandments, he says, I got to the the Tenth Commandment, which says, Thou shalt not covet. In Romans 7, Paul says, That commandment came to me, and it slew me, or it killed me. What does Paul mean by that? What does he mean when he says, that commandment killed me? Well, this is what I think he's talking about, and you can see here why he begins to share his personal side. You see, all of the commandments up until that one are on a behavioral level. Thou shalt not kill, perfect. I haven't killed anybody. Thou shalt not steal, I haven't stolen anything. Thou shalt not commit adultery, I haven't committed adultery. Uh, Thou shalt honor the Lord your God, I've done that. Thou shalt not uh, bow down to foreign idols, I've never bowed down to a foreign idol. And then you get to the 10th one, and it's thou shalt not covet. And Paul was like, whoops. Because here's the thing with coveting. It isn't a behavioral action. It is something that happens on the inside of your being. It is those thoughts that you have that you would never share with anybody. I'm talking about the thoughts so dark and so deep, you sometimes scare yourself because it's really wicked. You know what I'm talking about? You know those thoughts, don't you, Anthem? Yeah. Those thoughts that you just can't believe you have. And Paul recognized that no matter how good he was at following the law, No matter how much of the other nine he saw that, as Proverbs says, that from the heart flows all things that are wicked. Deceit, envy, lies, murder, malice, right? From the heart flows all that. That he could never control the covetousness that comes out of the heart. Those thoughts that pop up, those feelings of anger and and lust. There's nothing he could do about that. And it brought Paul, he says in Romans 7, it killed me. Because I realized that I could honor the law all my life, but I would never be able to control that. That there had to be one who came and lived a life and honored the law in such a way that he could completely fulfill it. That's why on the Damascus Road, we know that Christ said, Saul, Saul, why have you been persecuting me? And Jesus says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. A goat is a sharp stick that a shepherd would use to poke sheep. Now, a smart sheep would be poked and turn and go the other direction. Paul says, I was so dumb that I didn't just not go the other direction. I turned and kicked against the sharp stick. Just get that image in your mind. It's fantastic. And God's saying, why do you continue in this tremendous pain that is going on inside your heart? I'm sitting here goading you to go in this direction, and you're just kicking against me. And that's a lot of us, though. You see, we, we put on a confident exterior. Everything's going good. Paul was killing Christians in the name of Yahweh, and, and he looked confident, and he, looked, uh, he had all the education in the world, but on the inside, he was completely dying. 
He was looking for that something. He knew there was something missing. And then this Jesus came along. And the words of Stephen, he saw Stephen, a man so confident, so peaceful, so loving in the midst of trial and in the midst of being abused by those he was trying to reach out to. And he recognized that Stephen had something he didn't have. He recognized there was an inner peace. And so, so Paul shares with them the personal side of who God is. Now here's the deal. Most of you here today are probably not Orthodox Jews or Pharisees. Just a second. Yep. Nope. No Pharisees, no Orthodox Jews. But here's the deal. You don't need to, you, you need not only see that Christianity makes rational sense, but you know that when you encounter Jesus personally is when the gospel begins to make emotional sense. If you ever begin to read the gospel when you've really had an encounter with Christ and it just seems like it, it ties together, the words jump out at you, and I've heard a lot of you say that, where you're like, it just makes sense. I've never read it like this, or I've read it and it totally makes uh, more, I, I get it now, I get it, right? So this is what Paul's trying to talk about. And then the third one is he says it makes biblical sense. That's why he looks at Agrippa and says, I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said. I'm not making anything up. Fact check me. <laughs> Fact check me. Am I saying anything that, the Moses or, that Moses or the prophets didn't say? What Paul is saying here is easy to miss, but it's so important. He says not only does the gospel make rational sense and, and there's evidence for it in history, and not only does the gospel make sense for your life and your emotions, but the gospel makes sense when you see that from Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Christ. That the whole story has always been about him. Then the whole gospel ties together. Then you see Christ in Joseph. You see Christ in Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael. You begin to see the character of him all throughout, and all throughout the scriptures. And it all begins to make sense. So we're going to close with this question. How did Paul get the boldness to do this? How did he have that kind of confidence? How did he go from someone who was so fearful of Christianity that his answer was to snuff them out rather than meet them on a theological level and have a debate with them? They would just put him in prison and kill him to someone who would give his own life for the cause. You see, we read that statement, yes, I'm trying to convert you, and you know what I'm talking about. You've seen the evidence. You believe the prophets. There's, such a, there's, an, there's a confidence there, but not an arrogance. We don't get from the scriptures that there's a swagger, that he's telling off King Agrippa, but instead that he agrees and says, absolutely. And we know that because he says, my heart is that all of you would know Christ, just that you would not have to know the chains I'm in, the pain that I have suffered on his name. I hope you don't have to know that, but I hope you get to know Christ. Paul's been there. He's been where he feels uh, superior on the outside and inferior on the inside. He knows what it's like to be incredibly self-confident and how it's proof that you actually aren't confident. He says, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. He's respectful, he's poised, but he's not afraid. He's never afraid because he knows that there is nothing in this life that can conquer him or defeat him. And so I decided as I read this and as this week went on, and I want to share with you about this week as we come to a close, 
that I would try to persuade you of something here today. That I would use the art of persuasion to come before you and talk about something that God put on my heart last Sunday. Last Sunday, at the end of the day, myself and some of the pastors got together and we were talking. And uh, I said, man, I just feel like there is a lot of sickness in our church right now. Anybody else feel that? Cancer and disease and terminal illness. And I said, I I don't know, but I feel like maybe we just need to call people forward who are sick, right? And just pray over them. Uh, That's what they would have done in Acts. They would have brought them together at a house and they would have prayed over them and asked that God would heal them. And then Tuesday at our staff meeting, so the staff, uh, I don't know if you know this, but the pastors and staff, every Tuesday before our staff meeting, we spend time going over those connection cards and we pray over all of them, every single one of them uh, by name and and go before the Lord on your behalf. And uh, we we had five this week, five connection cards. All five of them were for cancer. All five of them were for five different people with five different types of cancers going on. And it was just a, like, huh, that's odd. Sunday, I had that thought or that feeling we should pray. And then Tuesday, we get to the messages, and this has never happened, and all five of them are just cancer. And then Thursday, I get a message uh, from somebody who says, hey, I had a dream last night. I'd like to share it with you, and I think it has some significance and some meaning to it. And so I don't know if it does for you or not, but here's the dream. So the dream essentially, and I'll sum it up for you, but it goes like this, that myself and my wife were in a house, and in the house there was a blue floor, and in dreams a blue floor often represents healing, and there was a father cooking a meal and preparing a meal, and in the dream I had a trumpet, and I was supposed to blow the trumpet, and it was known by the person having the dream that I was the person who was supposed to blow the trumpet. But I said I wasn't emotional enough to do it, that I couldn't bring myself to do it, that I didn't have the emotional side to do it. And then they just said, I don't know what this means, but I felt like I talked with some people I was supposed to share it with you. It wasn't just for me. And so I spent quite a bit of time thinking about it, and then talked with Pastor Josh about it, and then talked with my wife about it, and the chairman of our elder board, and got to this amazing conclusion that God was wanting to do something here today. But it freaks me out. Because if you've been here for any amount of time, you'll know that for me, I operate primarily on two of the three persuasion tactics. I talk about reason and logic. I show you the reason and logic of scripture, of, of the cross of Christ, of how it fits in history. And then I operate on biblical accurate, uh, biblical truth. I always preach straight out of the scripture. I don't add, I don't conjecture a lot. I just show you the scriptures, I show you the truth. It freaks me out to talk about the emotions and the feeling side of things. Like, that's scary and stupid, like if I'm being honest. Like, because at the end of the day, it's not empirical. I can't quantify emotions, I can't keep them in check, I can't make sure and be like, there, we, we did it all right. And I sensed as I was preparing this, so I'm preparing this sermon, and then everything else I just said happened this week, that God said, would you trust me, and would you do something today? And uh, so that's what this is. This is me completely out of my comfort zone, trusting him uh, for the third time here today. And if the previous two are any indication, there's a reason I'm not in charge, (laughs) and he is. So I'll just say this. uh, I got my trumpet. Thank you, Miles family for bringing my shofar, not a chauffeur, like I called it. 
That's a person who drives you around in a car, by the way. Uh, But if you have a sickness, if you have a disease, if you have an illness, I want to invite you to come forward. Just come up to the front here. And uh, you can stand up front here. And I invite you to be bold and to uh, not have fear. And at the end of the day, you won't look any more awkward than I do. And that can't be that bad. Come forward and you guys just spread out wherever you're at. What are you struggling with? Cervical cancer. Um, Sciatica. Sciatica. An aneurysm in your heart. Diabetes. 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 Eating disorder. What? Thyroid. Thyroid. Fibroid. Fibroid? I can't hear you. Bronchitis. Okay. Your heart. Yeah, it almost got you last year, huh? Diabetes and allergies. You know I didn't hear that. There's lung capacity. You've only got 40%. Okay. Down here, what do we got? What's going on? Back pain. Kidney disease. Alzheimer's. Pain in your left leg. Chronic pain, just in fibromyalgia. Oh my goodness, that is everything you just mentioned. That is nonstop. Okay. Rheumatoid arthritis. Juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Degenerative disc disease in your back. Chronic back pain. Neck pain. Huh? Lust. Multiple sclerosis. Tuberous. Thank you. That's right. Rheumatoid arthritis, thyroid issues, uh, low blood sugar, and really bad allergies. Constant stuff that drives you nuts. Two cracked teeth and an infection that hasn't gone away. Okay. So this is what this is what I felt like. This is again <laughs> so far outside my comfort zone, but I don't care. God is good. So what God showed me was that I'm not supposed to walk around and pray over each person. But that for those of you in here who God has given health at this time of your life, that just as the early church would have, that you're to get up and to come forward and surround these people and begin to lay hands on them and pray over them. And so it requires you to have faith and it requires you to be uncomfortable just as much as 
It required courage for them to come forward and share. Ask those who you're praying over, what am I praying for you? If God gives you a word, share a word. If this is weird for you, good. It's supposed to be. If you're uncomfortable, good. You're supposed to be. The point is the church and the body of Christ is not always something that is pretty and easy. And when we show up to church, and I want you to hear me on this, when we show up to church and we all just sit in our chairs and we listen to really good worship and then we listen to an inspiring message and we turn around and walk out, none of you got to see the 30 to 40 people up here who are struggling with really difficult illnesses right now. And the beauty of today and what God wanted to do today was he wanted to open all of our eyes to it, that this is always around us. But we haven't been given a spirit of fear. We haven't been given a spirit of ignorance. We've been given a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind to overcome it. And we have the power to pray and to speak into the lives of those you're praying over. So I just encourage you, get in people's personal space, stand in the front of them, lay hands on their head, lay hands on their back, and just let's become the body of Christ, okay? Let's pray. Go for it. Invite the, disease, I'll invite the band. How about your disease? My disease? Yes. We'll pray for that in a second here. Heavenly Father, we begin to... In the Old Testament, the Jewish people, when they would cry out for healing, the name they had for Yahweh was Jehovah Rapha, the healer. And Jehovah Rapha, we call on you now. We ask you to bring healing to the hearts, minds, the bodies, the muscles and the bones that are broken. The endocrine system that shoots out the wrong chemicals at the wrong time, the nervous system which is frayed and tired, the brain which does not operate properly, the cancer cells which have invaded and taken over. In Jesus' name, we come against this. We ask, Father God, in Jesus' name, that you would provide healing for those who would come forward and seek it.
So Holy Spirit, I pray, pray that you would just blow through this place. You would fall upon shoulders and the heads of those here, Lord, as a ointment, as a balm. Your name would be glorified in this place. partake in communion here in a moment and you can stay where you're at if you want to continue to pray. We've got six communion stations, three up front and then three in the back. We've got the pieces of bread and the juice in a bowl or a cup. And you can go to any of those stations, dip the bread in the juice. We just ask that if you partake of communion that you would do it knowing you have a relationship with the Lord. Otherwise, just let it pass and let today pass. The band will just play for the next three to five minutes and you can go wherever you're at. God's going to do something in here today. He already is doing something in here today. I want to read Psalm 54. Oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer and give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me and ruthless men seek my life. And they don't set God before themselves, Selah. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He'll return evil to my enemies and in your faithfulness you'll put an end to them. With a free will offering I sacrifice to you and I give thanks to the name, O Lord, for it is good. For you have delivered me from every trouble, and my eyes have looked in triumph on my enemy. Lord, I pray that here today, those words that the enemy today that we look at is sickness and disease. And in Jesus' name, we pray those words of King David, that we look to you for our strength and our weakness. We look to you for sustenance worship the name of the Lord and we present before you our offering.